Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, everyone, and welcome to New Books in Gender and Sexuality Studies. I'm Jamie Madden. Today, we'll talk with Dr. Mark Rifkin about his new book, Beyond Settler Time, Temporal Sovereignty and Indigenous Self-Determination. Mark Rifkin, welcome to the show. Thank you for being here. Hi, thanks so much for having me. I'm happy to be on the podcast. Great. I'm, I'm glad for the chance to talk with you. Mark, I wonder if you could begin by telling us about yourself. So uh, I'm currently director of the Women's and Gender Studies program at the University of North Carolina at Greensboro. I'm also a professor of English there. Uh, Beyond Settler Time is my fifth book, and uh, I've been working in um, queer studies and indigenous studies uh, for the last, you know, 15 years uh, or so. I got my PhD in 2003 from the University of Pennsylvania from the English department there. Uh, and I've also served as president of the Native American and Indigenous Studies Association. Great, great. Before writing Beyond Settler Time, you published a book called Settler Common Sense Queerness and Everyday Colonialism in the American Renaissance. Can you describe the intellectual genealogy of this project beyond settler time? So, so how did you come to ask these questions? Well, so I was watching the movie Lincoln, mm. and uh, in it, and for those who you know don't know, it's about the uh, tail end of the Civil War and the passage of the Thirteenth Amendment. And uh, when Ulysses S. Grant came onto screen at various you know, points during the film, there's a man with him who looked to me to be Native. And I thought, who is this person? Mm-hmm. And he's not speaking. He's not saying anything. Um, he's not referenced in any way. And the second time he came on the screen, it uh, occurred to me like, oh, it's Elias Parker, who was uh, a uh, Seneca leader. He was an incredibly important figure within Tonawanda Seneca um, history, but he served as Grant's chief secretary during the war and became the uh, head of the Bureau of Indian Affairs under the Grant administration. So I'm watching this movie and I'm seeing the figure of Elias Parker and I'm wondering why isn't he speaking? Like, why is he here? but not saying anything. And I started, and this, this phrase, the silence of Elias Parker kind of came mm-hmm. to my mind as I was thinking about this. And I started thinking about the ways that the kind of story that Lincoln wants to tell, the movie Lincoln wants to tell about national history, about what the U.S. is, about the Civil War as this crucial turning point in American history, can't really engage Native histories, histories of U.S. expansionism, histories of U.S. colonial occupation of Native lands. And I wanted to think about how uh, periodization, how we divide up U.S. history, works in ways that occlude engagement with Native histories and histories of um, settler colonialism. 
And so when I was thinking about that, often when uh, I'm working on an essay that's not connected to um, an existing book project, and I started mm-hmm. thinking about this as an essay, I start to ask myself, well, what would the book of this be? What book would this be in if I were to write something around this? And so I started thinking about questions of time, and it Uh, rapidly moved from the question of periodization, how do we divide up national time, to other ways of thinking about time and thinking about how understandings of time get shaped by settler colonialism, settler perceptions, settler institutions, you know, non-native, what in the book I call frames of reference. And so uh, I started thinking about other forms that that uh, would take. And I believe later in the podcast, we'll talk about the chapter so I can talk a bit more Mm -hmm. about the other forms that that took in the book. But in terms of settler common sense, that book was about how everyday forms of settler perception, of non-native perception, particularly white perception, uh, are shaped by histories of settler occupation, uh, the formal legal and political dynamics through which native land is expropriated, through which non-native jurisdiction is extended over native lands, but thinking about how those legal and political discourses and frameworks become normalized as just part of everyday perception. Mm -hmm. So then in thinking about time, one of the things I wanted to think about was how everyday understandings of time, of what constitutes now, of how we think about the relation between the past, the present, and the future, how those uh, uh, very quotidian experiences of temporality might be shot through with the dynamics of settler colonialism and what uh, alternatives to that uh, might be. And that's kind of the, the relationship between the, uh, the two projects. But really, it all came out of watching Lincoln. Mm-hmm. I want to be sure to return to the, the 2012 film, Lincoln, uh, because that's a, an important part of chapter two. Um, in chapter one, you contextualize your work within existing scholarship. And I wonder, can you tell us about the fields of study you're engaging? So, I mean, I think I'm, I'm moving across a range of, of fields of study. So in trying to think about time and to try to uh, draw attention to uh, common sense ways of thinking about time. I ended up drawing on uh, formulations from physics, from phenomenology, from um, native storytelling, which is a uh, huge part of how I'm approaching thinking about time. So I come to Deborah Miranda's work a lot, uh, especially her book, uh, Bad Indians, where she has this, uh, there's one image that I come back to a lot uh, of hers. She has an image of a river where uh, it's constantly flowing, but at no point is it exactly the same Mm -hmm. water. Right. That that it's so it's one thing and not one thing. Mm-hmm. It's sort of a flow, but there's continual difference within that flow. And I wanted to think about forms of native flow, right? Indigenous ways of experiencing time, indigenous people's ways of formulating time, including things like periodization, how you divide up time, questions of periodicity, including ritual periodicities, uh, frameworks for thinking about time. So um, uh, what kind of a time period are you using in order to understand the relevance of events? Is it a week, a decade, a year, a generation, several generations, things like that? Uh, And that Native storytelling as a way of thinking about how 
things that might seem of the past become uh, crucial in understanding what's happening right in the, the present moment becomes a frame through which to understand not only what's happening in the present moment, but your embodied relation to uh, your ancestors, to your people's history. Uh, in that chapter, I also draw a, a good bit on uh, queer temporality, uh, scholarly work around queer temporality. Mm-hmm. And there, I think what's uh, really important is drawing on queer modes of analysis that challenge the idea of a kind of heterolinearity, right? a sort of a reproductive understanding of time where one generation kind of gives way to another largely through the family, and then the past is gone, right? Mm-hmm. It's been uh, superseded right, by the present. And that, that work on queer temporality has worked to challenge that notion of legacy, of inheritance, which tends to be organized around a kind of nuclear family logic. Mm-hmm. But work on queer temporality has also tried to think about uh, experiences of connection across time, especially to forms of the past with which one does not have this uh, kind of continuous right, relationship. So how to think about the relationship between the past and the present, not as one of generational succession and inheritance in this uh, sort of uh, 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 vision of um, kind of family legacy. Mm-hmm. And so how does one uh, then raise questions about these everyday experiences of time like familial inheritance, right, that queer studies uh, asks such questions. However, because I wanted to think about forms of peoplehood, because I wanted to think about uh, the potential of inheritances across time within peoplehood, that I was interested in forms of continuity, which, and even generational continuity, which queer studies tends to want to bracket because so often that generational continuity gets thought of and gets understood in heteronormative terms. But drawing on queer, queer studies, uh, sort of rich work there, including um, by folks like, um, like Beth Freeman, uh, mm-hmm. to raise questions about how time is affectively experienced and how might um, normative ideas of time be tied to and be work in and through other normative institutions like the family, right? So try to think about the normativity of time. And then for this book, thinking about a kind of settler mm-hmm. normativity of time, how are experiences of time shaped by the regularized, normalized institutions of the settler state. So queer studies gives me a kind of lever there for both thinking about how uh, uh, experiences of time get treated as natural and given um, and how they get produced through social institutions, but also thinking about other possibilities for how one might understand relationships to time. Although thinking about it in a native context, uh, sort of moving away from a lot of the emphasis on um, discontinuity, ephemera, et cetera, that tends to be um, at the core of uh, queer studies work. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And you're exploring a range of sources, uh, as you mentioned, film, also documents produced by the government, fiction, text, histories. Um, you, and you describe the organization of the text beyond Southern time as, and I'm, I'm quoting here, you say it's a series of meditations on particular tensions, 
ways that indigenous forms of time push against the imperatives of settler sovereignty. And chapter two explores, as, as you said, the, the 2012 film called Lincoln. And can you tell us about this chapter? And maybe can you tell us also about the notion of temporal sovereignty? Well, sure. So temporal sovereignty is a way for me to mark the uh, political significance and implications of time. So often when we talk about sovereignty, we're talking about uh, some form of um, juridical structure, right? The, the how is governance in a kind of formal way and enacted, uh, things like jurisdiction, etc. So, but sovereignty has also been used to think about more broadly about a range of ways that indigenous peoplehood and self-determination get enacted. So temporal sovereignty becomes a kind of condensed way of getting at how uh, experiences of time might be subject to settler pressure, mm -hmm. that settler colonialism may be enacted through imposing particular uh, time frames, both in terms of taking national history as a given, which is incredibly important in the discussion of Lincoln, which I'll come to in a second, but also how um, settler colonialism gets enacted through imposing normative uh, processes of maturation. What does childhood look like? What does it mean to be an adult? Um, the expectations of um, marriage and wage work, right, etc. Uh, and so um, temporal sovereignty becomes a way of thinking about those impositions and the range of those impositions, but then also how uh, are Native peoples um, not simply enfolded into uh, those forms of, uh, you know, what I call settler time, those mm -hmm. settler temporal frameworks, or those ways of experiencing and thinking about and narrating and institutionalizing time that come out of um, settler expectations, frameworks, needs, imperatives that normalize the existence of the settler state and non-natives um, everyday presence right on um, occupied indigenous lands, uh, so that temporal sovereignty is a way of, of getting at all of those, those dynamics. Mm -hmm. uh, and with respect to uh, chapter two, where I'm thinking about Lincoln, so as I was mentioning before, the film Lincoln tries to tell this story, and it's a somewhat familiar story, about national history where the Civil War becomes this kind of redemption of the history of the Civil War and the 13th Amendment, emancipation, becomes this redemption of um, a history of violence. But the U.S. is then imagined and imaginable as always in the process of becoming freer. Right, that the idea of the U.S., as it's described in the film, is a movement toward freedom, and then slavery becomes a kind of aberration which gets corrected in the Civil War. And I describe this as the emancipation sublime. And as I was talking about before, so then we have this mute figure of Elias Parker, and, uh, and what the chapter thinks about is if one starts engaging with Native histories and histories of U.S. expansion and occupation, then the kind of periodization that centers on the Civil War doesn't make a lot of sense. And that uh, the ways that we treat the givenness of the nation, and I mean both the givenness of the U.S. as an entity, but also its specific territorial boundaries, right? The, how do we know that something belongs to U.S. history? Well, 
one way is it occurs within the U.S., right? But that requires that you take as given that within, right? And mm-hmm. in order to take as given that within, you need to lose track of the uh, uh, expansion onto indigenous lands, the seizure of indigenous territories, the denial of native governance. So I started thinking about what happens kind of during the Civil War or around the Civil War that can't come into the kind of historical imagination we see at play in the film. And so the Dakota War of 1862 uh, became a kind of primary site where you have this um, flare-up of uh, what, what from non-natives looks like a flare-up of violence out of nowhere um, uh, in Minnesota in response to uh, decades of uh, expropriation of Dakota lands. Mm-hmm. And it's occurring in the middle of the Civil War, but it has nothing to do with the sort of usual coordinates to which we understand um, the Civil War historically. And the very fact that Um, Native resistance to being pushed off their lands, to being starved because they're not getting the rations they were promised, that um, Native response uh, uh, in terms of, um, you know, opposition to U.S. forces, a turn to violence, that this is not uh, something that comes out of nowhere. But for non-Natives, it appears as if it does. And one of the things that I talk about is that the sense of time is that these lands are just going to be occupied by non-natives, that non-native um, settlement is just going to expand so that then native resistance to that, even though uh, you can trace right, the, um, uh, again, the decades long series of actions by the U.S. government to which uh, Dakota people are responding, um, even though you can see that for, uh, if you look in the historical record, for non-natives at the time, they understand this as this uh, uh, sort of a rational eruption, as if it's a kind of natural event, right? It's a sort of natural disaster. And so it seems to, to come sort of to be out of time, right? Mm-hmm. And I wanted to explore that kind of out of timeness and the ways that the, the kinds of thinking about um, the coherence of the nation and of national history we see at Lincoln is, is one of the things that's at play in the 1860s that is abetting uh, the violence against Dakota people and is contributing to what for non-Natives appears as a kind of incoherence of Dakota actions during the war. And then I also wanted to think about um, Elias Parker himself and to look at um, his actions in support of Tonawanda Seneca sovereignty before the war and to try to uh, get back Tonawanda Seneca um, lands, which had been lost in um, a treaty, uh, a um, incredibly problematic, fraudulent treaty of 1842. Uh, and then his work as the head of the Bureau of Indian Affairs after the Civil War and to think about the kind of long durée of his involvement in Indian affairs and of his importance in Indian affairs and of um, his relationship to the treaty system, because one of the things I'm thinking about in both the discussion of Parker and of the Dakota War is the treaty system Mm -hmm. as this uh, legal mechanism for uh, you know, from the U.S. perspective, legitimately claiming Native lands, which is shot through with all sorts of, you know, problems and duress and coercion, but the treaty system as this historical process that extends across the 19th century, but is utterly unintelligible within 
the historical and political terms of a film like Lincoln. Um, so it's thinking about both Lincoln as the movie, mm-hmm. as a, a, a kind of allegory of U.S. historical imagination, but also thinking of it as pointing to the ways of conceptualizing time and conceptualizing time as the unfolding of the settler nation that was at play for non-natives in the 19th century. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. The third chapter engages a novel called Sundown by John Joseph Matthews. And I find in that chapter particularly interesting your analysis of how the term queer is used in the novel. Can you share a bit about your analysis in that third chapter? Sure. Uh, so, uh, you know, John Joseph Matthews, Osage writer, writing in the 1930s, writing about Osage allotment. And in that chapter, so if, if uh, the chapter two on Lincoln focuses on questions of periodization, how we understand mm-hmm. the uh, dividing up of time and how we make sense of historical patterns or can't make sense of them because of the way we divide up time. Uh, the chapter on sundown turns to phenomenology, turns mm-hmm. to perceptual experience as a way of thinking about or really suggesting that the novel is thinking about how the imposition of uh, U.S. frameworks of non-Native ideas and institutions with respect to wage work, the family, education, land use, how that uh, is um, attempting to inculcate particular ways of thinking about and feeling and experiencing time and the disjunction uh, between those imposed ways of experiencing time Mm -hmm. and what the novel presents as um, Osage experiences of time in relation to ritual periodicities, largely uh, in the novel having to do with um, the, uh, uh, the dance, the Enlonchka, the, the uh, uh, sort of center of um, Osage ritual calendar, um, but also having to do with um, Osage relations to the land and, and you know, generationally enduring Osage relations to the land. And so uh, in the uh, main character's experience, main character is a um, young adult and then um, you know, adult man named uh, Chow. And the novel is largely about uh, engaging his ways of navigating between these two different, as I call them, spatiotemporal formations, one that's been imposed through U.S. policy and allotment, and one that comes through um, uh, Osage relations with the land and relations with other um, Osage people. And with respect to uh, the term or concept of queer, that often when the novel is talking about Chow's experience of himself as odd, as alien, as not fitting within non-Native social scenes and expectations, the novel uses the term queer mm-hmm. to mark that sense of alienatedness. No one could say, well, it's published in the 1930s. Queer didn't really mean that then, uh, but it actually did. Uh, and uh, I think one thing that's fascinating in the way the novel uses queer is that within um, the allotment system, within the boarding school system, uh, one of the things that U.S. policy is trying to do is to, as it describes itself, kind of give Native people a sense of true home and family, which we could describe as inserting them into 
a nuclear family structure, inserting them into heteronormative notions of um, of intimacy, of social reproduction, uh, ideas of uh, private property holding, and so um, the entire project of allotment and the boarding school system and everything that went with them can be thought of, as I've written in in other of my work, an attempt to make Indians straight, to insert them into Mm -hmm. heteronormative systems. And so uh, uh, within Chow's life, uh, that one of the main things around that is the presumed uh, uh, process of development for, right, normal, quote unquote, youth, right, which is, you know, you go to school, you graduate, you get married and get a job and sort of have a family. And child does not fit this model. And so when the novel is using the term queer to mark the disjunction between the imposed non-native social frameworks and the sort of experience of time that comes with them, and to juxtapose that with Osage social frameworks and the experience of time that comes with that, that the use of queer seems to be not just to generically mean odd, but to speak to the ways that Native social experiences, including ways of understanding time, ways of marking history, ways of thinking about embodied relationships to the land, come to be understood as perverse, deviant, but aberrant um, in a kind of sexological way uh, uh, within um, settler, right, imposed settler frameworks. Right? So I think that the novel is thinking about at the level of experiences of the body, of intimacy with other people and intimacy with place, of how one experiences history and generationality. It's thinking about how um, those experiences are uh, affected by this um, tension between this imposed right, settler framework of allotment and Osage uh, uh, social formations. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I wonder something. Something you say in that chapter strikes me as as, as really is really interesting. You say that the the character. Uh, child, you say his effective experience of being askew out of step with respect to the rhythms and orientations of settler soci- sociality. That, that reminds me that that emphasis on effective experience reminds me of some of the work you've cited already. Um, you, you cited Beth Freeman, but also Ahmed, you cite Sarah Ahmed throughout the, the text. And mm-hmm. I, I wonder if you can say a little bit about how you're engaging affect studies. Well, so, I mean that the um, the when you're talking about how uh, uh, time is experienced, mm-hmm. that I'm talking about not simply um, that how we can record time mm-hmm. or kind of abstractly or ideologically, right? How we break up time, uh, the forms of periodization we use, or the the terms that we use for talking about time. I'm trying to talk about. Uh, time, not as a a thing in which one, um, about which one has beliefs, right? So not trying to distinguish between native beliefs about time, uh, and then implicitly some real physical time, which exists separate, Mm -hmm. right, from those beliefs. I'm trying to think about how we can talk about uh, time as plural, Mm -hmm. how we can Mm -hmm. think about 
they're not just being a singular, linear, unfolding thing we call time. And so uh, in order to do that, within that um, first chapter where I'm, I'm sort of drawing on physics and phenomenology and trying to think them together, I draw on Einstein's notion of frame of reference, which is a way of talking about the fact that if um, you have, uh, and the classic example is uh, someone at a station and, and someone else on a train, right? That um, if a um, clock, you know, if, if you have a clock striking 12, right, let's say um, on the train, that the person on the train and the person on, at the station are not necessarily going to agree on exactly when that happened, because within Einsteinian special relativity, uh, their velocities are different. So, and that's going to affect uh, literally physically how time uh, unfolds. So within Einsteinian special relativity, there is no such thing as true time because depending on, as he puts it, your frame of reference, are you the one uh, at the station or are you the one on mm -hmm. the train? that you will have a different sense of when things are happening relative to each other. So there is no universal simultaneity. Mm -hmm. So this is a physical explanation of time. Well, what could that have to do with thinking about questions of settler colonialism or native sovereignty or peoplehood? Well, affect becomes a way of connecting them. So it's trying to think about how do uh, experiences of time that are lived um, in you know, daily, quotidian right, ways, um, how might those experiences of time um, be multiple in the sense that there's not just one linear unfolding time that everyone right, is in? So thinking about things like, well, if I have a multi-generational relationship to the space that I occupy, as Chow does in Sundown, mm -hmm. uh, then how is my sense of the unfolding of things and the relationship between things going to be shaped by that enduring relationship to place and all of the social relations that have emerged around and through that relationship to place? Mm -hmm. Or conversely, in the, um, the Lincoln chapter, I also, at the end, talk about Charles Eastman who is uh, an incredibly important uh, Dakota um, intellectual uh, at the uh, end of the 19th and into the early uh, 20th century. And his family was displaced as a result of the uh, Dakota War of 1862. They fled. Uh, most of them fled to, um, to Canada. And so um, in his work, he talks about and comes back to repeatedly the importance of that dislocation, of that exile, of the violence against Dakota people in his sense, his felt sense of what it means to him to be an American so that those those histories, both of um, relations with, uh, uh, with one's people, of the stories that are told as part of that, of connections with the land, but also histories of dispossession and of settler violence and the stories that get told about that and what gets transmitted generationally, that um, in both cases, in both, both of those ways, that, that uh, has an impact on uh, everyday felt experience. Mm -hmm. So that then to talk about um, what it means to think about a relationship or to feel a relationship to the past or the future, as if you could somehow talk about that outside of 
the ways that um, Native people participate, Native peoples participate in both uh, indigenous social formations, but also uh, uh, have been subject to uh, non-native settler forms of violence to try to talk about experiences of time as if you could you could sort of bracket out those experiences um, seem to me uh, problematic, mm-hmm. right? So that affect becomes a way of talking about how those histories and stories and relationships and forms of violence are lived as part of one's experience, as part of the perspective through which you understand in a kind of physical way, what's possible in the world? How do you relate to other persons uh, and beings? But also, how does one um, experience uh, the relationship between the present, the past, and the future, rather than thinking about that as a kind of generic question or a set of cultural beliefs that sort of perched on top of what's imagined as a kind of otherwise uniform sense of time. Well, everyone's just in time. Time is singular. Time is one thing. It's just linearly moving from the past to the future. Instead, affect becomes a way of thinking about frame of reference in um, social, political ways that are embodied. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And then... does that make sense? Absolutely. Yeah. Thank you. That's that's very helpful. Thank you. I um and then next, I think very very usefully, you tend to the question of futurity. So the next chapter called "Ghost Dancing at Centuries End" turns to futurity, but also memory and uh, conceptions of realness, for well, instance. Uh, well, could... I, I would I would describe it as less about futurity and more mm-hmm. about prophecy. Mm-hmm. Um. And I want to make that distinction because prophecy is not simply about the future. Then when we talk about prophecy, it's, it's often uh, in terms of someone in the present having a vision of the future, but also those visions of the future and the relationship with non-human entities, forces, et cetera, which give rise to those visions, uh, then become part of people's frames of reference, the stories that they tell, the interpretive frameworks that they use to make sense of the world, so that then a prophecy articulated in 1870 or 1890, which are the years associated with the most famous of the ghost dances, Mm -hmm. but a prophecy articulated then is not simply about something in the future from 1870 or 1890. It's also how uh, these texts, which I'm looking at, um, Sherman Alexie's Indian Killer and Leslie Marmon Silko's Gardens in the Dunes, how these texts at the end of the 20th century harken back to those uh, late 19th century uh, mm-hmm. prophetic uh, mm-hmm. social formations as a way of thinking about possibilities in their moment of writing, right? So that it's it's relationships across time which are discontinuous. So if I was talking earlier about how one of the things I wanted to, um, or questions that I had about using certain kinds of queer theory is that they tend to think about generational continuity as heteronormative, mm-hmm. right? And so that queer becomes, uh, 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 you know, what, what makes something queer is partially it's disconnected from that generational succession. Uh, and, and as we had talked about that, uh, you know, I want to think about uh, forms of continuity, about what gets gets transmitted from the past, about the transmission of stories, about forms of inheritance that are not nuclear family, Right, inheritance, but 
in the discussion of prophecy, I come back in some ways to those uh, queer formulations in order to think about uh, intimate relations across time, which um, are not about succession, which are not about the the uh, uh, sort of linear unfolding of time, which are not about the uh, continuous passage of one thing, um, you know, through time, but about a kind of hearkening back and forward, um, which uh, allows for, uh, uh, as I suggest in the chapter, different ways of thinking about Native identity than, as I discuss in um, Silko's text, right, she, she wants to challenge, or one of the things I argue is that the novel wants to imagine Indigenous identity not as bound up in being located on a particular reservation and thinking about the ways that uh, the question of who belongs to that reservation uh, often gets imagined in um, blood terms and in what can be uh, deeply heteronormative but blood terms about the transmission of racial Indianness. And, and uh, Silko wants to think in more capacious ways about Native peoplehood, about relations among Native people, about the possibilities for various kinds of intimacy and connection that are not routed through the nuclear family, nor are they routed through the uh, official mappings of Indian policy and the kind of codes of authenticity present in Indian policy for verifying who can really count as Indian. And that prophecy in the novel becomes a way of talking about rich relations across time that move sort of in multiple directions. And I think about it as um, the novel as envisioning prophecy as a kind of intimate network right, on which uh, uh, you can draw right in um, forging right, relationships in the present with future generations, with past generations, with the land that's not uh, dependent on this vision of uh, a kind of um, uh, reproduction of Indianness in places that are set out as Indian um, by you know, the federal government, so that uh, prophecy becomes um, a way of thinking about a, a, a kind of, I don't know if I want to say fluidity in relations um, across time, but the possibility of, uh, uh, of indigenous peoplehood as uh, having a relationship to time, which is not just that of succession, which is not mm -hmm. just that of unbroken continuity, because so often, um, that if there is a, a break in continuity, I'm thinking of the um, federal regulations that uh, uh, determine uh, peoples who are not uh, currently federally recognized, whether or not they'll be recognized by the federal government, the, the regulations um, of the uh, uh, you know, Bureau of Acknowledgement, that uh, one of the things that they, uh, the, those regulations indicate is in order to prove that you are an Indian tribe, you need to prove forms of continuity across time. If there's a significant break in um, the, the, the uh, periods for which you have documentary evidence. So let's say there's a 10-year period, a 20-year period, a 30-year period where you don't have some kind of proof acceptable right, to the federal government uh, that indicates that um, there was you know, a thing called a tribe right, in some form. Then that discontinuity means that your uh, uh, appeal, right, that your um, uh, uh, pursuit right, of federal recognition uh, will be rejected. Mm 
Mm-hmm. So that prophecy, I think, in these novels becomes a way of thinking about relationships across time that don't obey that kind of um, uh, uh, sort of settler-framed uh, logic of continuous Indianness, which is also about disappearance. It's about vanishing. It's about if there is not that absolute continuity that can be shown on non-Native terms, then um, Native people have ceased to exist, right? So the prophecy becomes a way of uh, of talking about um, relations to time which are other than the imagination of Native disappearance and vanishing. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And then at the end of the book, you continue to wrestle with this notion of temporal sovereignty. And I'd like to read a sentence from this final section. It's actually a question you're asking. So you say, how do we account for the roles played by feelings, memories, stories, and all manner of non-legally codified relationships in thinking about the possibilities and dynamics of collective struggles for justice? So, so can you tell us about those final, that final section of the book? Well, so there, it's in many ways, um, like earlier in our conversation, where I was talking about the fact that sovereignty is so often thought of in juridical terms, right? Mm -hmm. It's what does the Mm -hmm. government look like? What is the structure of that government? uh, Over what territory and people does it exert jurisdiction? What is the content and character of that jurisdiction? But as I noted earlier as well, there are also ways of thinking about sovereignty, the concept of sovereignty using the term sovereignty that uh, seek to uh, envision uh, and to mark forms of Native self-determination that exceed things that um, look like a political juridical structure from a Mm non-native perspective. Mm -hmm. So, and this gets back to the question of affect, right? Forms of everyday life. How can we think about peoplehood as lived in everyday ways that, and this is a um, drawing on the work of uh, Diane Millian, where she says that, um, uh, I'm going to get this, this not quite right, but uh, basically there are things that then don't show up as political. There are things that don't look political. There are things that become very difficult to narrate as political, at least on non-native terms, and certainly on governmental terms. So then in that um, that final section, I'm thinking, what are, what might, uh, uh, temporal sovereignty mean in terms of opening up possibilities for thinking about the various forms and shapes and dynamics and continuities and discontinuities and memories and futurities Mm -hmm. of peoplehood that don't look like a juridical structure, especially given that even as Native nations are um, trying to forge their own juridical sovereignties um, that are not mirrors of the U.S., and I'm thinking in terms of the U.S. settler state, uh, still the U.S. settler state does uh, uh, enact um, kind of oversight right, of Native nations, right, that the uh, U.S. Congress, uh, and this is dating from Supreme Court decisions at the end of the 19th and early 20th century, U.S. Congress has what's called plenary power, which uh, means that then, at least according to the courts, the U.S. Congress can do whatever it wants in Indian affairs, and there is nothing to stop it except its own will, right? So Native national governments are then making decisions about their governance, how to support their people, how to imagine futures for their people, how to draw on the past and principles and philosophies of their people. They're doing so in the context of, if not 
direct non-native intervention and oversight, at least the ever-present threat of non-native intervention and oversight. So it's to then think about um, what experiences of peoplehood uh, are possible when you're not focused on the juridical apparatus, which uh, can be um, such a uh, site of contention and struggle and oversight and management uh, by the settler state. Uh, and that temporality becomes a way of talking not just about um, what does Native peoplehood um, look like now, but of thinking about the ways that Native social formations may uh, obey uh, very different principles than um, in settler right, social formations, or at least to attend to the ways that settler ways of narrating time, you know, the notion of that, that, that um, Native peoples are included within national history, mm -hmm. the ideas about um, proper maturation, what growing up looks like, and you're then supposed to get married and mm -hmm. wage work and have wage work, right? Um, the um, ideas about what are the time frames that one uses to think about action in the present, right? For most people in the U.S., right, the average time frame that you're, you're, driving, you're um, drawing on it's largely like maybe, you know, somewhere between, you know, like a week and a decade, right? But much beyond that, it's not necessarily um, a huge part in regular forms of decision making in the U.S., right? But the idea, even something like the idea of seven generations, right, suggests mm -hmm. a different kind of temporality than that at play in U.S. governance and in um, settler social frameworks, right? Mm -hmm. So that, that temporal sovereignty becomes a way of talking about um, experiences, conceptualizations, narrations of Native identity and peoplehood that don't have to follow the understandings and visions of time um, institutionalized by the, uh, by the U.S. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Mark, we've taken up a lot of your time. I have one final question for you. Could you tell us about what you're working on now? So, so where has Beyond Settler Time taken you? Well, I mean, the, the question of uh, what I'm working on now and where Beyond Settler Time has taken me are kind of different questions. Uh, mm -hmm. Because uh, what, um, uh, what I soon realized uh, when I got into writing Beyond Settler Time is that thinking about time and trying to think about time as, not, uh, as um, physically multiple Right, that there's not just one linear unfolding now that we're all simultaneously in, trying to think beyond that is dizzying. Mm -hmm. um, so I've sort of uh, set aside you know, the question of, uh, of time itself. But uh, what I've been thinking about is the relationship between um, Black and Indigenous movements and political imaginaries mm -hmm. and uh, something of the work that I was doing in Beyond Settler Time is, is part of this new work, though, in that um, if uh, part of the argument of Beyond Settler Time is that uh, the claim that, that if Native peoples are so often presented as um, disappearing or as uh, anachronisms or as out of time, that often the uh, argument is no Native people are uh, in the present, Native people are modern. And so I started wondering, well, are there ways of thinking about Native 
being and becoming in time that don't require uh, Native peoples being necessarily in a shared temporal framework with non-Natives, or what kind of violence might be at play in inserting Native peoples into settler temporal frameworks. Similarly, with respect to uh, Black and Indigenous political uh, imaginaries and movements, a lot of what I've seen um, folks doing in trying to think the relationships uh, between and among them is trying to situate them within some uh, en encompassing structure, right, that we can talk about how um, uh, settler colonialism, anti-Blackness, slavery, indigeneity, Blackness, how they can all fit into uh, a kind of large structural account of how, uh, you know, modernity or at least U.S. modernity works. And instead of doing that, I've been thinking about um, Black and Indigenous uh, political formations and political imaginaries as different, right? And what happens if one does not try to merge them either into each other or into some supervening structure? What happens if you think about relations between and among them, uh, and especially think about that as processes of translation, right? How do um, Indigenous uh, political mappings, imaginaries, notions, um, uh, 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 interests, goals. Uh, what happens when um, those are engaged from, let's say, within Black political frameworks, histories, understandings? Like what happens in that process of translation and engagement? And to think about the movements between and among those formations, rather than sort of inserting them into uh, a, a story, a structure, an analysis that could somehow encompass all of them at the same time. And I guess that in some ways um, uh, uh, relates to my desire in Beyond Settler Time to think about the possibility of there being multiple times. What's mm -hmm. opened up by thinking, multiple temporal formations rather than inclusion into one. And so that possibility of thinking difference and relations across difference is um, something that uh, I'm taking up, although in a very different way, in this new project. Mm -hmm. Mark, that sounds like a great project. I thank you for being on the show today. I really enjoyed it. Thank you so much. This was great. All right. Take care.